0: This show is sponsored by Headnote, helping law firms get paid 70% faster with their compliant e-payments and accounts receivables automation platform. Learn how to get paid quicker and more efficiently at headnote.com. Welcome to this episode of the Modern Law Library. I'm Ashley Elfervik from ABA Publishing and I'll be today's host. In this episode, I speak with Faith Pincus, the author of Being Heard, Presentation Skills for Attorneys. As an attorney and a formal federal law clerk, Faith helps lawyers boost their self-confidence and gives them the tools they need to succeed at public speaking. She has been coaching for more than 25 years. Today, she talks to us about anchors, outlines, and the Devils software program. Faith, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, Ashley. Thank you very much for having me. So,
0: um, I wanted to start because a lot of people like telling stories in their presentations, and you advise to keep anecdotes short and sweet, because people might remember the story, but not why you told it. So, how can you keep a good yarn from getting away from you during an extemporaneous speech?
1: Yeah, that can definitely be a problem, and people will get complaints about it. But it, it boils down to something I'll probably say throughout the whole podcast, which is preparation. You have to prepare and you have to practice. And, you know, some people say, I don't have to practice. I can fly. I'm fine. I can wing it. But the more you attempt to wing it, the more likely you are to just go down on tangents and spend forever on your anecdotes and your stories. So what you want to do at a minimum, I mean, I say practice, 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 but at a minimum, practice your stories and your anecdotes. Because when you do that, you'll really see how long you're taking and you'll notice if you're starting to meander. And if you do it a couple times, you'll have the story down And then you will be fine. So that's really the best way to do it. And then in your outline, you'll just want to put a couple of references to the story, just the name. Like, for example, in my outlines when I teach public speaking, I've got one that's judge so-and-so story. And I've got one that's the CLE story, that sort of phrase, instead of having the entire story written out. And that helps as well. But it's about preparation and practice for that one. And, of course, knowing in advance that you're not going to have a long story, so you're making sure when you're practicing it that it's a short story.
0: And um, speaking of outlines, I'm a huge fan of writing outlines, but there's such a delicate balance between writing too much or too little. So what do you suggest to strike the right balance?
1: Definitely. So when I teach this and when I talk about it in the book, what you have to do to create a good outline is you have to start with a full sentence outline. And the reason why you do that is it gives you the opportunity to get all your thoughts down. So you, you really walk through what it is you're going to do. And you put in those stats and the quotes. If it's the citations to the cases, you put those in, anything along those lines. So you put it all in. And for those of you that like to write or for those people that like to write out their speech, you can start by writing out your speech. But then you have to still turn that into a full sentence outline. And I do recommend the standard outline format that we all learned way back in school. So... You start with that and then you practice it at least once. I recommend practicing it more than once, but you practice it once and as you do that, sort of, you know, similar to practicing your stories, you'll see where things don't work, they don't fit. You've got words in there that just they aren't easy to speak. They're easy when they're written down, but they're not easy to speak. That happens a lot with introductions as well. And then as you're practicing it Go back to the outline when you're done and then start cutting down. And just cut down and start making references and key phrases, things along those lines. And then you practice it again. And then you cut again and then you're good to go, usually. And if you can only practice it once, that's okay. But at least do that because then you can cut things out. And you just want in your keyword outline exactly what it sounds like, words and phrases that will remind you about what it is that you want to talk about right then, the point that you want to make right then. But that said, you always want to keep the stuff in your outline, your keyword outline, that you may or may not remember, when you're, especially when you're on the spot. So the case citations, you always keep in. The statistics, you always keep in. Quotes, I use quotes a lot. Keep the whole quote in just in case your mind blanks so you have access to it and it's there on your outline. But the more you do it and more used to it that you become, then you can also judge yourself, you know, how much you need in that keyword outline versus how little you need. For example, when I first created my my three-and-a-half-hour presentation skills for attorney program that I do through my CLE company and also law firm's, It was a 60-page outline, 62 pages, if I remember correctly. And obviously, if I walked into a room with a 62-page outline, everybody would look at me and they'd be thinking that I'm nuts and how could they get out fast. So not to mention the fact that I don't know how I'd get through a 62-page outline in three hours or ten hours. So after practicing it multiple times and each time I cut it down, I got it down to about 20 pages for three and a half hours, which is a, a good good number of pages for that length of time. And then that particular outline varies between 20, 21 pages and one to three pages depending on the length of the presentation. If I'm only doing an hour presentation, then it's just going to be a three-page outline. And it's just about, again, reducing down to... The number of words and phrases you need to make sure that when you refer to that outline, you'll remember, oh, right, I wanted to talk about that. Oh, right. That's one more point I wanted to make. And then again, you've got the key stuff, the statistics and insights and, and stuff in there. So you can read them if you need to, if you can't remember them.
0: Definitely an art, too, to kind of whittling those down from 62 to, uh, to did you say 20, I think? That's, yeah,
1: 20 to 22. pretty good work. <laughs> it took a while and a lot
0: of mm-hmm. practice.
1: But it was an important presentation.
0: so Definitely. So a lot of people like to keep their outlines or their note cards on podiums, but those can be either an anchor or a barrier while you're trying to make a speech. How can presenters make sure they float around naturally rather than clinging to the podium with those notes for support?
1: Uh, that's a good question, the, because a lot of people do clean, a lot of people cling to the podiums, and then when they do, some people will lean on the podium, then they'll slap the podium. I call it the lawyer lean when they're leaning on the podium. There's a couple things. Number one, you mentioned something about note cards and outlines. Don't use note cards. They're too easy to drop, to fall, to get mixed up, and they're, just, they're really difficult to sort through when you're on a podium. So that I'm just going to, as an aside, don't use note cards. Use outlines on regular-sized pieces of paper that are not stapled together. So you can just slide it from one side to the other instead of having to flip it over. So that's a little tip about, you know, how to use outlines on the podium. As far as moving around on the podium, it's, you know, it's all about being prepared and knowing what it is you want to say because once you have a good idea and you've practiced and your outlines a keyword outline, you'll feel more comfortable moving out from behind the podium, because you won't be so dependent upon the podium. The podium is a safe place. That's why people will stay behind it. They, it's a barrier between them and the public, but it's also or their audience, but it's also something that makes them feel safe because they want that barrier between them and their, their audience. And of course, you want to get out of that. So let's start with court. If you're in an oral argument or at trial, you usually can't move out from behind the podium. It depends on the judge as far as trial, and as far as oral argument, you just can't, whether it's at the trial or the appellate level. In those cases, I just recommend you move slightly to the right or to the left. And don't move back and forth. Just pick a side you're going to be on and move slightly to the left so you can get away with having the podium not be completely in front of you. So that's just one tip as far as how to deal with the podium barrier issue when you're not allowed to move around and you can't move around and you definitely don't want to be moving around in oral argument. And when it comes to opening statements and closing arguments, you always obviously have to ask the judge in advance if you're allowed to move. Now, when it comes to moving in any other setting or when you're allowed to in court, once you have a good idea of what it is you're going to say and you've practiced, and you've got a nice keyword outline, if that's on the podium, in advance, make sure you know in which direction you're just going to be moving the pages. Are you going to have the full stack on the left and move the pages to the right or vice versa? Make sure your pages are numbered. That kind of helps a little bit with the nervousness. And then at that point, what you want to do, if you can move her out from behind the podium, is you know, have a good idea of what it is you're going to say, and you can move off to the left a little, and then when you're done talking about a particular subject, and if you're off to the left or, say, you're, you're walking around in front of the podium, you should be making eye contact with everybody, regardless of what side of the room you're on. But when you're ready to move on to a new topic just sort of float back behind the podium. I do this all the time. Skim the outline, look at it. It's perfectly okay to pause for a couple seconds while, or 60 seconds or whatever, while you're looking at the outline. Because at that point, you're making it clear that you're just making sure you've got, you've said what it is you wanted to say. The attendees, the audience members, they're not going to have a problem with that or or think badly of you. And it's better to do that so you make sure you've covered what it is you want to cover. Then you can move off to the right. So say you start on the left You know, you've been in front of your podium, you've done your introduction without looking down, you've started your presentation without ever looking at your notes, then you know where you're going to go next, you move off to the left, float around a little bit, talk a little bit to your audience, remember that it's a discussion with your audience. Even though we call it a presentation, you want to make it as natural and like you're having a discussion with your audience as you can. Then sort of float back to your podium, skim your notes again, your outline, your keyword outline, which is why you want a keyword outline, and then sort of float off to the right. And then you can do that if you're not super comfortable with movement. You can do that. When you are changing topics, when you need to look at your notes again, and that's an easy way to do it. And at all times, however, regardless of what side of the room you're on, you want to be making eye contact with your entire audience.
0: Definitely. And um, another thing that you talk about in the book is kind of how to make good eye contact with your audience and not focus too much on those friendly faces, but still using those as kind of a, a good confidence boost. Um, can you expand a little bit on the right way to make eye contact?
1: Well, eye contact is one of the most important things you can do to improve your delivery, if not the most important thing you can do to improve your delivery, because people don't want to listen to somebody that's not looking at them, at least in America. I'm talking culturally in America. So you want to make sure you do it. So what you can do is you've got small audiences and you have large audiences. So with small audiences, you're just going to roam around the room. It's Again, it's all down to how much you're going to rely on your notes and are you going to read a speech or are you going to speak extemporaneously, which means that you have prepared in advance and you have an outline. That's not the same as winging it, which is a whole different ballgame. So with a small audience, you just need to be conscious of the fact that you need to look at everybody and you move around and you don't focus on one person too long because you might be, make them uncomfortable, but you don't want to go back and forth and back and forth like you're watching a tennis match. And it's really, it's actually not that hard as it sounds, as long as you're not staring constantly at your outline. In a bigger audience, when you've got, you know, 50, 100 people more than that, you want to make sure, and that point is when you pick the friendly faces. You sort of divide up the audience in quarters or eights or whatever, and you pick that really friendly person in the middle, you know, in each one of those quarters, and you look at them, and when you look at them everybody near them thinks that you're looking at them so people in the entire audience start feeling like you're looking at all of them but you can't make eye contact real eye contact with a whole large audience so that's how you handle the big audiences when you're dealing with a jury you have to be it's essential that you make eye contact and when you're dealing with a judge and you're at oral argument i know some judges that don't look up much they don't look at the speaker makes no difference as you, as an attorney and as a speaker, you should be looking up as much as possible because you want to be making eye contact with that judge. Eye contact is about making yourself seem friendly and also appearing confident. If you're looking down all the time, you're not giving an impression of being confident about yourself or about what it is you're talking about, and it's not all that friendly. But if you're making eye contact with everybody and smiling at the appropriate times, so obviously not smiling when something's very serious, then you can connect with your audience and they can connect with you. And and that's, you know, a big goal when you're speaking in public. And just as an aside, when it comes to eye contact and it's tied into what I mentioned a minute ago, it's critical when you are starting your presentation and ending your presentation. So the beginning and the end, the introduction and the conclusion, critical that you are not looking at your notes you are making direct eye contact with everybody in the audience as much as possible because you want to give that great, strong impression that you know what you're talking about, that you're really confident, that you're super friendly, and that, as I said, that you know what you're talking about. I mean, think of it this way. If you have to look down at your notes when you want to introduce yourself and talk about what you're talking about, you're lost. People want to know, why are you looking at your notes when you're introducing yourself? That's silly. That's silly. So make eye contact in both of those contexts if you want to have a good impact and kick off your speech in a good manner.
0: Definitely. All right. We're going to take a quick commercial break to hear from our sponsors. Hey, law firms. Getting paid is fantastic, but dealing with accounts receivable is such a pain. What if there was a better way? In her head note, an industry-leading compliant e-payments and AR automation system Their unique blend of features cuts through the noise and helps you to get paid 70% faster. Skip the paper checks, spreadsheets, and awkward calls to overdue clients. Get paid faster with less effort. Visit headnote.com for more information. And we're back. Thanks for tuning into the Modern Law Library. I'm speaking with Faith, the author of Being Heard, Presentation Skills for Attorneys. Okay, Faith. Speaking of confidence, one thing we've talked about a lot at the Modern Law Library lately is how lawyers can be more confident and manage their fear. In the book, you name 18 ways to do just that. But um, going with kind of that rule of three for speeches, what are the three best ways to manage public speaking anxiety?
1: Well, I'm going to sound like a broken record. (laughs) But like I said, I've been doing this for, you said, I've been doing this for more than 25 years. I started as a political consultant, writing speeches and training people how to speak. <laughs> so the first thing you need to do is to know your stuff inside and out, and that, of course, is preparation. The more you know your, what it is you're going to say, and the more you've prepared it, and additionally, the more you've practiced it, the more you can reduce your fear. That won't take care of all of it if you have a big fear of public speaking, but it will help because if you don't feel like you've prepared enough or you don't feel like you know your stuff, then, of course, you're going to be nervous. So that's the number one way to help with your fear. The second thing you can do is to practice it. (laughs) So one is know it. Two is practice it as much as possible. And I, I recommend to people that have a lot of fear to join Toastmasters, actually. They don't teach you how to speak, but they give you an incredible, terrific uh, environment that's very safe to practice speeches that won't necessarily be legal speeches, and you're not going to be practicing in front of your colleagues or a judge. You're just going to get up and speak over and over and over to help uh, lay those fears. So that's a good way to do it. So number one, know your stuff. Number two, Prepare. Number three, and it's hard to, you know, whittle 18 points down to the top three, but number three I'd probably say is to understand that your audience is not your enemy, whether it's a jury, a judge, or you're out, you know, speaking in public to clients or to at big conferences or whatever. Your audience is not your enemy. They want you to succeed. Sometimes people are afraid, oh, they're all going to judge me. They're all going to think I'm horrible. Oh, I'm not going to get that promotion, whatever it is. It's uncomfortable for an audience if the speaker shows how nervous they are, and most people really don't think you're nervous, and they won't see that you're nervous unless you've got some nervous tics or you tell them. And I've seen people say, I'm so nervous, and I cringe every time I see that happen. So the audience isn't going to know that you're nervous, so keep that in mind. And they want you to succeed because it's not comfortable if you don't succeed for them. So they're rooting for you. They may or may not agree with what you're saying, especially, you know, when you're dealing with a judge or a jury, but that doesn't mean they want you to flub or they want you to be uncomfortable or to not remember and freeze or things along those lines. And it doesn't mean they're judging you as a person or as a speaker. So you just need to to realize that and keep it in perspective.
0: Definitely. So kind of switching gears and, um, you know, something that may take a little more confidence to utilize in a speech, humor can either engage or isolate an audience. So what are your best tips on when to use or not use humor?
1: Humor. Humor is a good one. So there's a couple rules about humor. One is, you know, your best bet is always anecdotes and stories when it comes to humor. That's, that's your best bet they're natural, they're easy to understand, you can have a humorous story without trying to tell a joke or remembering the punchline, and you don't generally have to worry about offending people. So that's you know that's the easiest way to go. Another thing you can use is self-deprecating humor. Don't do it too much, or you'll sound like you don't have a lot of confidence. And self-deprecating humor is, sometimes it's in, within the context of something that occurs while you're speaking, and sometimes it's just as part of your anecdote or your story. For example, I tend to run into things and trip on things if there's things on the floor or purses or whatever when I'm doing my, my presentations because I'm so into what it is I'm teaching and speaking about that I'm not necessarily paying attention to what's on the floor. When I do, I just make a joke about myself. Sometimes I say, oh, I haven't had enough coffee yet today. Sometimes I say, clearly I've had too much coffee today. Whatever comes off the top of my head. And then people laugh. You've got a moment. I've made fun of myself. And you move on and those are really good contexts. If you're going to tell a joke and some people just think they should be telling jokes, there's a couple rules. Number one, you need to know the punchline and you need to know remember the joke because jokes are all about timing. Usually you pause before you hit the end of the joke. I generally don't recommend telling jokes, but if you're going to do it, you've got to make sure you do two things. One, You have to make sure it's funny. Not all jokes are funny, even though we think they're funny. So I've already said you need to know it, but then you need to know, you need to make sure it's funny, and you need to make sure it's not offensive. And the only way to do that is to run it by somebody. I always say run it by somebody that's not dependent upon you for money or or employment or food, but it doesn't matter. You just need to run it by somebody. It's important because if a joke falls flat, unless you're Jay Leno or David Letterman, you might be sitting there going, "Uh uh-oh, what do I do now? And that's going to make you more nervous. And if it's offensive, whomever you have offended, whether it's 10% of your audience or half of them or whatever, they're going to be paying attention and they're going to stop listening to you. And what they're going to do is talk about you afterwards, and they're only going to talk about what a jerk you are because you offended people. And I have to elaborate on that a little because there's this especially lately, but always this perception that, oh, you're being too PC or, you know, why can't you say whatever's on the top of your mind? When you're speaking in public, you need to be careful that your audience is not going to be offended for exactly the reasons I said. So it has zero to do with being PC. It's about, you know, reaching your audience, and you can't reach them if you've offended them. I had a city council person once that I was coaching, And he told this horrible sexist joke, and we were busy coaching, and he was winging it. And I spent a half an hour trying to convince him that, you know, he would have offended pretty much every woman that was in the audience. And it was overtly offensive and sexist. And, you know, I don't know that I ever reached him about that one, but it is important if you're going to tell jokes to not think about something being too PC or not being too PC. Just think about whether or not you're going to reach your audience or you're going to offend your audience. You want to reach them. Why do anything that would keep you from reaching all of your audience?
0: No, um, and thank you for expanding on that. So speaking of comedy, um, you refer to PowerPoint as the functional equivalent of a heckler and the devil's software
1: program. Can we unpack that a little bit? Sure. So PowerPoint. The problem with PowerPoint is it's rarely used for its intended purpose. PowerPoint is a visual aid, the keyword being aid. It is not your presentation. So, you know, I call it evil, the devil's software, because it just destroys presentations and bores your audience nonstop. There is a place for PowerPoint, and that's when you want to show certain things, whether it's graphics or pictures or deposition testimony, highlighted or things along those lines. If you're just going to put up bullet points and huge blocks of text, all you're going to do is bore your audience. And they're going to sit there and go, Why am I here? Why am I listening to you? All I need to do is read this. This is a waste of my time. So PowerPoint is frequently misused. So obviously I'm being facetious when I call it the devil software. But if you're going to use it, and it's a powerful tool, use it as a visual aid. And one of the ways I tell people that you can do that is that you create your outline first. So you've created your full sentence outline. You've reduced it, practiced it, and reduced it to your keyword outline. Then you can open up PowerPoint and decide what slides will help emphasize or help you elaborate on or give you that visual aid that will enhance what it is you're trying to say. Most people open up PowerPoint, then they write their presentation in PowerPoint, and you're guaranteed to give a poor presentation if you do that. I will say I own a CLE business as well, and a lot of uh, attendees will say they like PowerPoint. They like having a few bullet points up on the page. They hate lots of text, and they despise it when attorneys or anybody who's presenting just reads whatever's on the slides. Again, why am I here? I can read it myself. They do like a few bullet points sometimes. I'm not a big fan of even that, but if you're presenting like at a CLE or something along those lines, you can do that. Keep in mind, though, if you have a lot... To present and a lot that you want them to take back with them, have an outline for them to take after the program so they have all the details there. Don't smush it all into a PowerPoint slide. And especially one other hint with PowerPoint, never, ever, ever have type font that's less than 20 point. I can't tell you how many times people send me PowerPoint slides and they've got 9 point, 10 point, 12 point. You can barely read it on the screen, much less read it, you know, when it's when it's projected onto a big screen versus your computer screen. So keep that in mind too.
0: Definitely. And a good rule of thumb as far as fonts go. So like uh, you said earlier, you have 25 years of coaching experience. So what are some of your favorite stories from your career?
1: Well, (laughs) there's a lot of them. I would say, uh, you know, my favorite thing is when I see somebody who starts out And they're fumbling and they don't, you know, they they can't do it, or they're just putting too much into their presentation and nobody can follow it. And we work on it. Sometimes we have worked on the outlines at the outline stage, and the next thing we know, we've got two presentations instead of one because they jammed just too much into that presentation. A lot of times we do that because we just have so much we want to talk about. So that's happened with a couple clients. There was one client where a law firm brought me in because they had a really bright associate who they loved and he was great. And he did a lot of oral arguments, but he kept mispronouncing words. And so they brought me in as a coach. And because it was giving a bad impression, obviously, if he was mispronouncing words in front of a judge. And he wasn't mispronouncing words, he had a speech impediment. And how nobody figured that out was a little bit beyond me. He had a speech impediment, it took me a few minutes. And, and those I don't work with, I immediately said, okay, here are our options. One, anytime we come across a word, that you can't say because of your speech impediment, we change it to a word you can say. And the other is, I told him to get a speech therapist as well, but the way to handle that was twofold, that and to just not use words that he couldn't pronounce because of the speech impediment. There have been things along that all the time. But I, you know, my favorite thing about coaching is just seeing the dramatic change. Even after one session, people can change. It's pretty cool to
0: watch. Definitely, and I feel like I've learned a lot here, so hopefully we can kind of all go on and have uh, storied speech careers. Is there anything else that we didn't get to touch on that you would like to talk about?
1: You know, I think it's really important for people to understand that public speaking is a skill. So, yes, some people are more talented than others, some people are the Tony Robbins, you know, amazing, charismatic you know, presentation, delivery style. But you don't have to be that to be a good speaker and to give a good presentation and to reach your audience and for people to hear you and for you to persuade them and say it's a context in which you're trying to persuade, like in court. But what you do need to do is learn the skills. Uh, It's just like cooking or golf or being a musician. You're not born knowing how to read music knowing which club to use. You have to learn how to do that. You have to study how to do that. People have to tell you how to do that. And then once you learn those skills, you can improve. So it's not something that, that happens overnight or is magical and, boof, you've, you know, you've graduated law school and you're supposed to be this perfect public speaker. And that should make it a little less intimidating. It's no different than any other skill. Once you learn the skills... Once you learn the different things that make you a better public speaker, for example, how to create an outline, what's so important about your introductions and your conclusions, what sort of rhetorical techniques you can use to reach people more and and help them relate to what it is you're saying, those are things that, that don't come naturally. Once you learn those and know about them, and then you practice and put it into practice, you can improve your speaking. Anybody can improve their speaking. Anybody at all can improve their public speaking if they learn the skills they need to know to do it. So it's really important because some people are just intimidated by it. It's like, well, I'll never be a good public speaker. I I don't know how to speak, you know, or I'm just nervous all the time, things along those lines. Anybody can learn the skills and become a better public speaker.
0: Awesome. And thank you so much. Where can our listeners reach you if they're interested in learning more about your work?
1: They can reach me. My website is speechadvice.com. So www.speechadvice.com. My email is faith at Pincuscommunications.com. So F as in Frank, A-I-T-H at pinkus, P-I-N-C-U-S, communications with an S on the end, dot .com. And our office line is 626 298 and all of that information is on the website, too.
0: Wonderful. Thank you. And thank you for being here. Listeners, thanks for tuning in. You can save 30% on this book at the ABA Web Store. Use the code heard 19 at checkout. That's H-E-A-R-D-19 at checkout. You can purchase Being Heard: Presentation Skills for Attorneys at the ABA Web Store. Go to AmericanBar.org slash products. That's AmericanBar.org slash products. If you enjoyed listening to this episode of the Modern Law Library, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast listening service.